Hey, this is Matt Rail, and I'm sitting dockside with my Tennessee buddy, Troy Goldsby. We're going to take some time and try to answer some questions from you. I'm your host, Matt Rail. I've been working with lakes and ponds for over 20 years, and during that time, I've picked up on a ton of tips and tricks from lake and pond owners all over the country. So if you want to learn how to catch some smiles for your kids and grandkids off your lake, or how to grow some memories off your pond, then come sit with us, sitting dockside. All right. Welcome to Matt and Troy, Tip for Tat. Questions. We kind of have been in between some of our larger podcasts, going to get questions from you, the lake and pond owner, and try to answer them as best as we possibly can from the expert down in Tennessee. And, Tennessee, uh, baby. <laughs> I'm current. I'm actually currently drinking the nectar of Tennessee at Diet Sundrop. Look at that. Is that right? Delicious. Delicious. I, I heard you talking about that the other day. Is, is really Sundrop made in Tennessee? Yeah. And I, I mean, their logo is something like it. Other people don't like it. We don't care. But it's it's delicious. And even you can even see it's it's a Tennessee thing. Like there's chunks of citrus stuff floating in them, and it's it's really quite spectacular. So, really, you don't think that's just <laughs> bad manufacturing? <laughs> just giblets. If it is, if, if if it is, I don't want them to change it. I keep spitting <laughs> in it, whatever they're doing, because I love it. <laughs> All right, all right, I love it. I love it. So hey, uh, we've had some questions out there. And this one we always get, so we might as well just do a quick summary on it, is is it's spring of the year. When do I start feeding my fish? You know, and then how much do I feed my fish? Do I feed my fish? We'll try to wrap them all up in a quick little summary. I'm sure we're going to have some bigger and longer talks on this. But, but each, each one um, of them has had this question along along the way. Yeah, so uh, I'll go in reverse. Do I feed my fish? I always say yes. Uh, it's gonna it's gonna create three things: uh, larger fish, increased productivity, and a uh, localized population of fish for kids to catch fish at. So, do I feed fish? Yes. Um, the number of feeders you need is uh, I, I typically say one for every two to three acres. Um, in the spring, when do you start feeding fish? Uh, if you stop feeding fish, which there's lots, there's several parts of the country you feed fish 12 months out of the year. Uh, even in Tennessee, I feed 12 months out of the year, but I just back it way down in the cold months because even in you know November, December, January, we get some warm days where fish will come back up and feed a little bit. And even if that floating fish feed, if that's what you're using, if it floats to the bottom, they're still going to be able to utilize that as it comes through the water column. Uh, if you stop feeding in the winter months, you know, just when fish activity starts ramping up, I would say probably by the 1st of March is when you need to start trying to get food back on them so that they're getting acclimated back to the food. Those water temperatures, the 1st of March, probably going to be in the high 50s uh, in the southern, in, you know, Tennessee, North Alabama, North Georgia kind of range. Uh, so, yeah, that's, I think it's fair. I think it's the, I think it's the number one most important thing you can do for a pond or a lake is feeding fish uh, with a supplemental uh the the forage fish feed them with a supplemental feed and um the studies on this that 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 i have seen uh you need to be feeding somewhere north of you know five pounds of fish food per acre to really see an impact that that is correlated into bass per day 
uh, per day. Yes. Yeah. The, uh, what, do you, what do you think on that? I think I am a hundred percent agreeing with you. I'll just expand on a, on a few other notes is that one about timing is chemical reactions double for every 10 degrees that we change. So, um, that can be debatable and fish are cold blooded. So therefore, as they warm up, they need twice as much oxygen and twice as much energy and they need twice as much as grow because they're just big, large chemical, cold blooded chemical reactions. That's one on that. So as it gets colder or warmer, they'll need more food. So that's going to increase the amount of food you put out. The uh, uh, temperature, I say upper, you really want to, if you're going to put an automated feeder, I like in the 60s. If you're going to hand feed and selectively put out there during the hot sunny days, like, like Troy was talking about, then yeah, you could go below that, kind of hit that good afternoon. I, you could, I've fed in, in here in Indiana in December before, which is, but it was only three days out of the month, you know, um, that was actually warm enough to be able to do that. If, so I agree with all that. The point of if I should feed and if I not is pretty much I pretty much think the same way is like yes uh, I look at it as is a totally different way it's a totally different energy source so now if grandpa's pond back in the day uh, I will say this the first guy my first uh, time I ever stocked a pond by myself my first job I told the guy about feeding fish and he laughed in my face he goes I'm not feeding my fish and now 80% of my people have our feet in their fish. But, uh, but it was like, it was so foreign to him, you know, because grandpa's pond, you never fed it fish. But during that time, the only energy source is the sunlight. So that's all we had for years and years is like, how do we make more use of the sunlight to make plankton, make zooplankton in the bottom of the food chain and create everything else? Well, now we have another input of energy, you know? So we have a whole other energy input, and that's feed. So now that's why we are pushing growth rates and production rates out of the way because we're just we just act like we had a whole other energy input with the sun. So now, and thirdly, which is an expansion on what Troy said is, is that we're seeing more fish being feed trained. Like now, everything that we're buying and purchasing are now <coughs> like hyperstripe bass, even all like the the evolution of of yellow perch in the last 10 years, just that fish right there has just been really cool and uh, how it can tolerate warmer water. But when we first started, when I say we, I use that loosely, when when the yellow perch is, would first be in feed trained, that it was 12% would go on feed and now 99% go on feed. It's really simple to get yellow perch on feed. And so the genetics have changed on that. So we're seeing a lot more fish that have capabilities to go to the feeder. Um, as we do that. So feeding the fish is, is, is really important it's because if a, you stocked yellow perch and didn't feed, it would stay very small. It would just not have enough energy and it would compete with everything. But now is yeah, that it, we only stock yellow perch if you are feeding. So that not, <clears throat> that little kind of theory kind of plays into a lot of different ways. Um, and then finally, should I feed is, is if fishing and fish, which we're trying to big fans of, is the highest priority, then yes. If it's the lowest priority and aesthetics is not, is aesthetics is the highest priority and fish are the lowest priority, 
then I can almost say, yeah, great, get some feed and maybe hand feed just to show your friends how much are in there, but it's not going to be a highest priority for you. But yeah, I, I agree. I agree completely with that. And I guess my default is, uh, is always going to be that people are wanting to grow fish. I have, I have a few clients that are more concerned with aesthetics than they are uh, fishing, but it's, it's a, it's a very, very small percentage. Uh, and yeah, but I agree. I mean, if, if you don't care about, you know, how big your fish are going to get, there's just not a lot of need. And, and there's so many directions this conversation can go, but you're talking about Pawpaw's Pond. Um, you know, the old models of how we stock, stock ponds and lakes are, are completely out the window now just because of the fact nobody is really stocking, utilizing the methods that, that they did back in the day to, to have a sustainable uh, source of food in their backyard. Now it's all about the, the biggest, the best, the, the highest catch rates. How do we... How do we do that? And the only way I truly know to do that is is through the food chain, like you mentioned. But we're able to bypass um, the photosynthesis part of it uh, and bypass uh, the base of the food chain by going directly to the to the forage base with a with a pellet. And uh, I love that. I love not having to fertilize a pond or a lake, which is a obviously another topic. But uh, right, yeah. I, I will I'm, say I'm, I forgot to mention this about feeders and hand feeding is. If you are a, let's say you're a large multi-owned pond or lake and it's a tight-knit community and you want good, you want good uh, experience with young children, then put that feeder at the end of your dock and Katie bar the door because that's where a lot of the fish are going to be hanging out. Biggest fish are going to be because they're going to have the correct nutrition uh, and going to yeah. that feeder. And for kids, it is awesome because it's collecting that decreases that what we call time per catch ratio so it's you know it's down into that video game kind of kind of time to turn each catch you know because there's so many fish fish out there yeah and i mean it goes back to the whole structure conversation we've had in the past uh, it really becomes another form of structure because it becomes such a high congregation point for fish that I mean, you can you can cast out almost with a bare hook a lot of times and, and reel in a you know three quarter pound to pound size bluegill shell cracker. So. Yeah. One thing I'll say, and then we got to keep we got to move on, is uh, also uh, fish food has changed in the last several years since they brought fish indoors. They have monitored if the if it was a very poor fish food, they had to clean up. A lot of the byproduct but if they a lot of that food goes into the body weight of the fish they don't have to clean that up in the water quality and so they have dialed in a lot and they're still learning that we're still way behind compared to other industries but um the the actual uh, the what do i say troy the how good the fish food is 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 improved so much more in the last, you know, several years, we just have a better nutrition out there. They just have dialed into it. So, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, you're you're gonna pay. We're gonna you're gonna pay a little more for the fish food, but it's so much better for the for the for for what you're trying to accomplish. Right. Uh, it, it pay it pays it pays back in dividends if you uh, if you're feeding the proper food. So, uh, right. very very important, and we we can have, we obviously have extremely long conversations about that as well. Yeah, yeah, and we're trying to keep it short. So. This is another one too. Uh, this this particular customer, or this guy, wrote in on a on a on and wanted to us to answer. He just bought a new lake, 
he's got his shorelines are are just ate up with with weeds and um and that he doesn't mind spending some money but he wants to get them cleaned up and how should he do that does and he doesn't want to hurt the fish and it, and the herbicides that are going to spray the shoreline they're safe are they safe or are they you know um you know what what should he do in your in his situation yeah so first of all we go back to identification making sure you know what's there um if it's if it's a true um let's say shoreline emergent type of species and you don't want to use herbicides it may be something that can be reached with a weed eater obviously keeping that clean aesthetically is, is going to be nice for kids wanting to be down there um keeping the grass a little shorter is going to keep it less snaky uh if it's something that that you're not going to be able to, to manicure uh physically then herbicides are you know really the best option um, there's about 15 aquatic labeled epa approved aquatic herbicides all of them um, are uh, none of them are none of them are toxic to fish. Uh, read the label. The label is the law. Uh, some states um, private homeowners can't utilize them. I, most of the time you can, uh, but using the proper herbicide on the proper plant is is absolutely crucial. That's why identification is so important. You've got to know what plant it is so that you can pick the right herbicide. Um, and that's pretty easy to do. A lot of times it's a simple Google search or it's a, a quick, you know, picture of, of the plant laying in your hand so that we can see the leaf structure. You send it to uh, your closest uh, resource or, you know, to one of us, we can identify it and then tell you the proper herbicide to use so you're not just, you know, wasting time, money, and, and putting something in the environment that's having no effect. Um, but if you're talking, you know, emergent species like primrose, alligator weed, uh, water willow weed, um, black willow those types of things are fairly common on the shoreline uh, they're not very aesthetically pleasing uh, you can you can wipe those out pretty easily with herbicides um, and then you can come back in and plant something that that a lot of people would like to see something like a pickerel uh, with that pretty purple flower uh, i like justitia uh, which is a water willow weed it's got a real pretty lavender flower on it that can be aesthetically pleasing uh, and it can be manicured and maintained fairly easily so um there's herbicides are, are are one of the greatest options uh like anything else you use in life though it has to be used appropriately uh and and uh, you have to read that label and make sure you're doing the right things yep uh expansions on that do i disagree nope again we are pretty much in line with the same thought process i will say that shorelines maintain shorelines are very important i my saying this is you tell that lake where you want to fish don't let it show you where you have to fish and by not making you know so many times the the willow i'll spray it next year and before you know it they a patch that's you know 30 percent of the shoreline and you're trying to cast your bait in these little tiny pockets between the between the trees you know and uh right and that that's just that that's just i just in in so many different ways and need to need to address that and i'm not a big fan of, of willow trees along shoreline and i think the examples that that troy said on shoreline stabilization and some habitat are very important i do believe that you need to plant some um taking a look and identify your shoreline is number one and we'll continue to say that uh, verbatim probably in 100 more times as you listen to us is that uh 
is identify, but then also make sure you can have some plants that are, are, are wetland tolerant along the shoreline and really there's a bunch of them that flower, a bunch of them that look great, but they'll hold that shoreline and keep that lake shoreline young while providing a lot of habitat for, for fisheries and that sort of thing. So picking up and which plant you want to plant there is really important depending on if you're going to have to cast over it, you don't want a high growing plant. And if you don't, then you need a low grow, low height growing plant like, like Troy was talking about. So, but as far as herbicides go, um, you know, I think there's no expense. I think you nailed it. Um, you know, using them appropriately, understand when you got to use them. Um, they make the world a lot easier. I will say aquatic herbicides are one of the most rigorous tested um, herbicides in probably any, in, any, in any industry because of, you know, because they can be carried off target and, you know, just because it's in water um, and it's the way our industry is. So that's why we yeah, don't. I mean, I think, what, I, I think what people don't understand, well, a couple of things to on that is obviously if you're just going out and spraying, then you're going to expose uh, a dirt shoreline that's going to cause erosion issues. That's one of the reasons you want to identify the plant and maybe target that specific species and not kill the, the other vegetation that's around it. Very important. Uh, and to highlight what you're talking about, how rigorous it is, uh, I, I don't know the numbers, but for every product that is um, that, it, that makes it to market in the aquatics industry, there's, I don't know, it's something like, it's it's a couple, three or four or 5,000, maybe even more than that. I can't remember for sure. I've got those numbers written down somewhere that don't make it to market. And it takes about 10 or 12 years for a product to make it to market. And it costs these companies somewhere in the neighborhood of about $250 million for all of the testing that has to go through. And if you look at all the herbicides that are out there in the world, there's still only about 15 that are approved for aquatics uh, by the EPA. So we have a very, we have a very small toolbox um, uh, that we can utilize for controlling these species. That's why it's so important to identify the plant uh, and pick the right product for that plant. Yep. All right. Well, that wraps her up. Another, another talk. And I'm sure if you want us to talk about <laughs> uh, two thumbs up on Troy, if you can't see him on the podcast, but, uh, the if you want us to talk about some questions you have go to our facebook page and uh and take a look and go to pwnra.org i would take uh take a few minutes there and and read and listen there's a tremendous amount of resources there and the reason we're able to do this is is from that nonprofit and the only reason the nonprofit's going is because of, of members and people watching it. And as if that continues to grow and you continue to like or subscribe to us, then we can still provide you with content and, and education. Closing thoughts, Troy. Uh, not, not much I can expand on there, but uh, just understand we're, I mean, this is stuff we're passionate about. We love doing this and uh, hope y'all are enjoying it and go to pwnra.org and uh, y'all check it out. Uh, we will, uh, we'll be back next time. Sounds good. This podcast, Sitting Dockside, is brought to you by Private Water Natural Resource Association, a nonprofit built just to educate private pond and lake owners on water quality and fisheries and all of that good stuff. There's videos, there's places to read, and there's a community built right into that website. So if you want to learn more, jump to pwnra.org and click 
And by all means, make sure that this continues in the future. Podcast, education, video, become a member. If nothing else, there's tons of platforms. YouTube, Facebook. Just hit like. Send a comment. We appreciate everything you can do here at PWNRA.